Hi, my name's Noreen Jamil, and this is... Emily Kate Stevens. Both of us have been diagnosed with long COVID. And we've created this podcast dedicated to the condition. Welcome to the Long COVID Sessions. Emily, it's the end of the summer. I'm in the US, so it's almost monsoon season. You might hear some thunderclaps as we speak. But how was your week? It was actually okay. I was thinking today, if you think back to us recording a month, a month and a half ago, do you remember how I was constantly shaking and really kind of all over the place? I think I am doing much better at the moment. I'm not saying that I'm fixed, but I think that breaking that pattern of having atrocious sleep might have made me feel a little bit better. I st- Don't get me wrong, I still feel like i basically have a hangover every single day and I've not touched alcohol since the 6th of December but yeah I think I'm feeling a little bit better and how was your week? My week wasn't too bad in terms of my long Covid. Uh, I've stopped all my medication and I haven't actually gotten it gotten worse and I'm actually feeling okay. My heart seems to still have these palpitations but I, I tend to ignore them more now and just get on with things now that I know that my heart's not going to stop. That's sort of because you've had the reassurance from the cardiologist that it's sort of it's safe to pass through them, do you think? Yeah, instead of just sitting down and, and feeling really sorry for myself and poorly, uh, I tend to find that if I'm actually just keep doing something, they pass quicker. Oh, really? So that's, so that's something really good. Now... Since we last spoke, you had a cardio stress test. Yes. How was that? It was brilliant, actually. I think everybody with long COVID should do one, simply because it really helps with your mental health. Because a lot of what we go through is anxiety because no one seems to have any answers for us. And nobody seems to know exactly what's going on with our body. So if someone can tell you, you know, you ran for 10 minutes and your heart and your blood pressure didn't go through the roof and we didn't have to stop. It was tremendously reassuring. And now I feel like I can go out and do some exercise and start to recondition my body a little bit. Long COVID is very complex. Um, I know that, but I've always said in all of these sessions that for me, my cardiac issues are my biggest. And so for me personally, that was really reassuring. I think it's a really useful diagnostic tool. Great. So we've spoken a lot uh, between ourselves and with all the various people that we've talked to about long COVID in adults, but a sort of much underrepresented uh, demographic is uh, children when it comes to long COVID. Recently, we had the pleasure of speaking to Frances Simpson, who is one of the founders of Long COVID Kids. She got COVID in March 2020 as did both of her children, and all three of them have ended up with long COVID. It's quite interesting hearing about the way it presents slightly differently in children. Yeah, and I think it's really important that we we got this episode out this week with the schools opening, Mm. you know, in a few weeks or next week. And the majority of children going back are still not vaccinated. Mm. And at the moment, it seems to be that a lot of the cases, the fresh cases are popping up in schools. And, you know, it's just a really good topic to touch on now because people keep saying that kids are not affected, but that small percentage of those that are affected 
do suffer. And we speak to two girls who have suffered for more than a year with quite debilitating long COVID symptoms. So my daughter, when she became ill, she started with a sore throat and an earache and, and a temperature. So I initially thought, gosh, she's got a different virus to me. She's obviously got a, some sort of virus from, from school because the symptoms are so different. So I asked for some antibiotics and she took those for a week. And she literally stayed in bed for about six weeks. And she was really ill in that time. She could barely walk. You know, I was having to help her down the stairs. She couldn't eat anything because she felt so sick all the time. I was having to try and get compounds for her. Um, so that she'd have some some sustenance. Again, when, I, when I'd when i ring up, they would say, well, it sounds like she's got a viral infection. It sounds like she's got some sort of virus. So, um, you know, just keep giving her fluids. You know, the usual thing. Um, and I think that, that kind of describes my whole experience of COVID, of talking to doctors and saying, this is what's happening to me. This is what's happening to my children. And being faced with, well, that's not COVID. You know, and, and that was, that's that kind of, the sense of this top down, you know, the knowledge comes from from above. We we need to have empirical evidence of before we're prepared to believe the lived experience of people. And I think there was a real um, range of, uh, of 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 medical experiences. I had one doctor who was who was great, and he said, "Look, he said you're one of the pioneers of this. We don't know yet." And I thought, well, that's that's a bit of a you know, I'm not sure if that's a bit of a, a double edged sword, but at least he was prepared to believe me. Whereas obviously, you know, we had I had the other doctors um, who just would not, unless it had been stamped from above as being a symptom, then, you know, they weren't prepared to discuss it. And that sense of just absolutely no idea uh, what's going on. And, it, and there's something really frightening in that, you know, um, that your body's doing all these strange things, that uh, it doesn't follow any um, you know, any narrative that you, you've been told. Um, and when you're trying to get help you know it, it, it just feels like you're completely on your own and and when you throw in children I remember at the time thinking I've got to be really careful about how often I ring the doctor and who for because I'm in danger of looking like someone who's hysterical and then I won't get help for any of us so I was having to kind of manage each of us um, and almost alternate who I rang the doctor about to go from you know pre-pandemic where you know that if your child's ill or if they're particularly ill, you can get them to doctor and you will be believed to a place of, I've got to somehow manage this, these weird symptoms without any help because I've got to almost triage the the, the use of the, the doctors so that they don't have me down as, as a kind of risk to my children. So what about your son? How bad was he? Interestingly... He seemed to have a mild temperature. He, he wasn't too bad, a bit of a cough. Literally, I think he probably coughed about, I don't know, five or six times, and then it was, he was okay. But he had been experiencing pain in his testicles prior to starting this. And it was only in retrospect that I realised that that was actually the start for him. Of course, at the time, why would I put the, link the two? But in, in retrospect, he, he definitely had testicular pain first. And then his symptoms seemed to go, but then... He, he had strange things that would come back. Both of them did. He's had a lot of nausea. His nausea has lasted pretty much since then, and it comes and goes. But he'll often say, I feel sick. I don't want to eat anything. I can't eat. He actually had a, a, a lot of fatigue, so really didn't want to do anything, didn't want to get out of bed. He had neurological symptoms. Um, I remember one day him saying, we were watching TV, and he said, but why is that lady's head shrinking? Um, at this stage, I was so used to the strange symptoms that my children would come to me with 
I didn't really even blink. I just thought, you know, this will just be another thing that COVID's done. I said, well, well tell me about it. And he said, well, the lady's head's just got smaller. And then that happened quite a few times. And it turned out that it's called Alice in Wonderland syndrome. And it's, it's a neurological thing, kind of like migraine. And it causes people's heads to shrink. So that, that was one of the things. He had a metal taste. He'd, he'd say, um, I've got my metal breath back. That, that was kind of a sign of, of him having his flare up. So he, even now, if he says, I've got metal breath, I know that it's not going to be a good day for him. Do their um, symptoms follow any pattern? You said yours follows your menstrual cycle. Can you see anything recurring within the kids? Not so much, no, not really, except obviously the times where they've overdone it. And all three of us seem to have something around cold that it seems to trigger um, relapses. But my daughter did start her period at the beginning of the year in February, and she just turned 10, and she's had very heavy periods since then. And this seems to be something we've seen a lot in the group of early puberty, uh, you know, or uh, periods being affected, even in children. It's actually something that Dr. Elaine Maxwell said to us, that there are a lot of instances of girls starting their periods much earlier mm-hmm, from, the, mm-hmm, from the research mm-hmm. that they've done mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. or from the data that they have gathered. Uh, effects th- throughout the menstrual cycle. So mm. some people are also um, getting early menopause. People mm-hmm. who are postmenopausal starting bleeding again. I mean, it's, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the impact on the menstrual cycle is fascinating and pretty scary. Yeah, it, well, it is, particularly with my daughter, you know, she's um, having periods every couple of weeks that last for a couple of weeks at a time. You know, she's still only just had 10, you know. So, and again, we're in a place where I can't take her to the doctor and say, I think this is COVID, you know, what can we do about it? If I ring the doctor and, and say anything about it, it will be um, attributed to, well, it's just that's what happens or early, you know, or sometimes children or, or pandemic or, you know. That's so, unbelievable. So, and you as a mother, you have that knowledge of your children and their behaviour. Mm, mm, mm. So that is really shocking that that it that people are not listening to you. Is it shocking uh, though? Because during the pandemic, we couldn't even see a GP. Like they'd shut their doors completely. You know, it's... They just, it's the first thing is a phone call, antibiotic, mm. it's a virus. Mm. If, you know, mm. ring 111 or really bad, go to the hospital. We don't and want to see you. I have seen time and time again in the group parents who they have taken their children to the doctors. I mean, I, I rang, I remember when, when Magnus, uh, my son, had his relapse after we'd been out in the snow. And I rang the doctor and I said, look, he's really not well again. His, his temperature has gone sky high. Well, his temperature itself hadn't, and yet he felt very hot. Um, he was really weak. Uh, he had his metal breath. He felt very sick. He didn't want to eat anything. Uh, and I was quite concerned because it was, you know, a, a bad relapse for him. He'd gone quite a long time where he'd been okay. And the doctor said, well, um, oh, that's right. And also his eyes, he, he can't see very well. In the mornings, he'll say, I can't see properly. Um, and he couldn't walk. I had to carry him around to his bed. And the doctor said, well, you know, it could just be that he's got sleep in his eyes. He's hot because he's probably got too many blankets on. He, he probably re- he's reached that age where he doesn't really want to eat the food you're giving him. So he's saying that he feels sick. Literally, he managed to attribute all of the symptoms to something and with an underlying message of don't believe him. He's lying almost. And it was I, just, I, you know, I, I thought, do think that's shocking. I know we weren't allowed to see doctors during the pandemic and things, but I do think that's shocking. It that is shocking. Even it is once shocking. Got hold of a doctor that they can mm. completely refute every single 
yeah. every single yeah. No, I, I felt, I mean, I, I, the next day, I think I felt probably as low as I felt in a long time. And this was actually this year because I felt like, you know, we've been working really hard in long COVID kids. But, you know, I've been writing, I've been involved in research, I've been raising awareness. And yet when I try and take my son to a doctor and say, I'm worried about him, that's the response I get. It just felt so uh, invalidating, minimising. And then I rang a different doctor. Oh, that's right, his tongue uh, was like a strawberry. So he had the, the strawberry tongue that a lot of children seem to get, which, you know, is a bit like the strep. In fact, you know, so I, I ended up bringing back and getting a different doctor and, and taking him and it was OK. But at that moment, and, and this is not a rare experience for, for parents of children with, with long COVID. Um, just in terms of the symptoms, um, uh, from your work within uh, within the group as well as your own children, mm-hmm, have, mm-hmm. you notice that there are certain symptoms prevalent in children that we're really not seeing in the rest of in, in the adult population. But there's a lot of similarity. We did a survey of 500 plus parents of children in in our group. So, you know, and we did get a sort of picture of symptoms and, and a lot of the main symptoms are the same. So you've got headaches and the fatigue and all of those. But we're seeing a lot of symptoms that kind of fall under the PANS, PANDAS kind of umbrella. So neuropsychiatric symptoms, things like tics and Tourette's and the real change to, yeah, behaviour, um, very, very severe kind of anxiety, mood changes. And then we're also seeing uh, symptoms that have some similarity to the PIMS-MISC profile. So, you know, these children who get very, very ill with the inflammatory syndrome. So we see quite a lot of peeling skin and red feet. We see skin lesions, quite severe skin lesions. So, I mean, you know, the, the, the range of symptoms is vast, but there are some that are slightly different. To, to adults. What are the statistics that you think that children are getting long COVID? Because for adults, it's as high as I've seen some reports where it's as high as 14% of everyone who gets COVID gets long COVID. So ONS, I think the, the latest uh, figures they gave were 7 or 8% of children. 7% of children who get COVID um, will go on and get long COVID. And that's 7% in primary age and 8% in secondary age. Um, there's still a lot of there are a lot of question marks around prevalence. Um, I mean, it's very difficult to 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 truly count long COVID in children. Quite a few children who were a, completely asymptomatic. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. subsequently, they might not necessarily know are related to long COVID or be registered anywhere. That's absolutely one of the issues. Yeah. And, and that's something we found in the survey that we've done that there's uh, in a lot of cases, there is a, a gap between an asymptomatic or very mild uh, infection and then long COVID. I mean, some people are coming back six months or more later saying my child was fine and now is is showing symptoms of of long COVID. And it's difficult as well to get a a true control group because of that, because, you know, we don't actually know how many children we might think children haven't had COVID, but, but how can we know? Because nobody was PCR testing children at the time. And quite often, as we know, the initial infection looks nothing like the symptoms that were provided as those of COVID. So it is a, I think it's very difficult to get accurate prevalence data. It, it, we see it, I mean, it seems to affect children's, um, you know, gastrointestinal uh, system a lot. We have had a lot of children who've had um, appendicitis or what seemed like appendicitis and um, because of the inf- inflammation in the gut. So uh, it, it definitely seemed to affect 
lungs much less in children but as we know it's, it's multi-systemic so um, and, and the thing is there haven't been the MRI scans done on children that we've had in, in adult populations to see what effect it's having. We're seeing quite a, quite a lot of effects that look like neuroinflammation. Again, I mean, we just don't know. And this is the thing that Long COVID Kids is is campaigning for and, and constantly campaigning because, you know, the, the, the narrative that children are fine and we can send them into school and that, that they don't get affected. Actually, we don't know that. We don't know that. So tell us, what prompted you to go out there and be an, a voice and an activist for and set up Long COVID Kids and how you how you went about doing that? So right back last year, I found uh, Body Politic, the support group, not long after I became ill, because like many of us, I was trying to find what is this? Is anybody else experiencing this? And then on the group, I found a few other people who were keen to to do something to raise the profile of long COVID. And we formed uh, a campaign group called Long COVID SOS, um, which, and, and made a film, everybody's interested in the adult side of it. And I kept saying, and my children, um, and are there other children out there? So we, we spoke to the uh, WHO in August, um, and I raised the fact that my children were ill with it, and the fact that, you know, I'd spoken to other people on sites, and, you know, maybe this is something we need to be thinking about. And of course, without the data, without any, you know, empirical evidence, it's just anecdote, you know, anecdata. So I went and, and wrote this article and that was kind of a start of of raising the profile of, of, of long COVID in children. And then I met Sammy uh, McFarland, whose daughter has long COVID. Um, we both decided together that we would start a support group for people with long COVID in children and start raising awareness because it was so far behind the adult you know, population. And let's be honest, you know, that wasn't great. <laughs> long, you know, long COVID adults are still a battle. But the, the idea that children had it was just not even, there wasn't even a... A narrative in existence for that yeah uh, and also particularly challenging if you're an adult that has it with children that have it absolutely and, for, and for so many it's the case so many of our parents have long covid and children with long covid <laughs> which which on the one hand could point out there being some sort of genetic factor to it but can also be written off as anxious mothers inflicting anxiety on children you know that's one of the things that we hear you know you're making your child anxious, <laughs> your anxiety. So that lack of validation has been a real issue for, for so many of these people. And, you know, the PTSD that goes with having a child um, who, I mean, I had one, one I've had a few experiences with my children, but um, a couple of them that stand out was, one was my daughter saying, uh, just out of nowhere, she'd had no real uh, issues with her lungs, but she said, it feels like my, my lungs feel like balloons that I can't blow up. She said, I can't breathe. And again, I was just sat there thinking, I don't actually know what to do with this. This is not in the manual of children's illnesses. We're on that spectrum of rush them to hospital to just sit here and see if it goes away. Does that sit? You know, and I've, I've had another couple of experiences with her where she suddenly said, I can't breathe. It feels like I can't breathe. And her panic has been so clear that, that I... I know that she literally can't breathe. She says, my throat's closing up one day. And I just had to sit there and think, okay. And I've had to learn to sort of sit and see what happens. Is, is this going to get worse or better? Be ready to ring an ambulance if it gets worse? Or because it might, with these things, sometimes they just blow over and, and 20 minutes later, it's fine. And, and I suppose that's something that I've had to learn. I feel like I, I wish I hadn't had to learn how to, to sit with such 
anxiety around my children and just wait and see. I'm sure that you you think about this often, but with these children, you know, the long-term effects on their lives, uh, it must be super scary and worrying for you. Yeah, uh, it really is. Well, I think even short-term it's worrying. I mean, it's, it's worrying because we see children who get better and then suddenly, out of nowhere, have, have something terrible come back. So Sammy, who, who uh, is the Long COVID Kids founder, uh, my colleague, if you like, her daughter's been well for, I say well, much better for a long time. They've just been on holiday and she's collapsed um, and is now in hospital. We're still in that place of, well, we don't really know. The blood tests are coming back clear. So... I think short term, medium term and long term, this is really quite, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very frightening. Um, and, and I think, I, you know, I said to someone the other day, you know, would you be unvaccinated and walk into a room full of people uh, now? Uh, and the answer is no. M- most of us would, would absolutely not do that. And yet we expect our children to do that. Um, and children don't have a voice. They don't have the right to say, actually, I choose not to go to school because it's not safe. So so I suppose that's another reason why I advocate for children. Have it, has the group managed to gain momentum and, and make some roads into getting some serious research and some serious resources put into looking at the the effects on children? Yeah, I mean, we've achieved a lot in, in since October. I think... The fact that we have 3,000 members, which in itself, we've now branched out. So we've got Long COVID Kids US, Long COVID Kids Canada, Long COVID Kids Scotland. Um, and we have just been banging the drum. You know, I work with with other um, paediatricians, you know, a paediatrician in Italy who's um, been doing work on Long COVID uh, in children. Um, there's a paediatrician in, in Moscow. So we're linking up with these people and they're linking up and things are looking much more promising now than they were, but there's still a long way to go. What do you think there's the hesitancy for for us to vaccinate our 12-year-olds and older? Because I would do it in a heartbeat. And in the US, I think over 4 million children have already been vaccinated. And in this country, there seems to be a real kind of mental block from by the government to get get our kids vaccinated before school in September? <laughs> I'd like to say it's a mystery. You know, I think even now, if you ask the majority of people, they will say children aren't affected. And I guess if I were in a position where that was my belief and that was my experience, maybe I would be more reticent about having my children, you know, exposed to, to a vaccine. But that's because the, the narrative around children and the, the honesty, you know, the, the truth that children do become really ill uh, we don't know what the long-term effects are, has not been headline news at all. So, you know, I think uh, where the government's concerned, the narrative around children has not been made clear. And there are some people who still, I, I don't know whether they don't want to believe that children don't become ill or whether whether it's an inconvenient truth. I don't know. But yeah, we would we would argue that children need to be vaccinated, particularly before going back to school in September. The fact that a majority of children are not subsequently affected or don't have detrimental effects because of it doesn't mean that we shouldn't take it seriously in the proportion of people that are. Absolutely not. You know, if you are the mother of a child who gets long COVID and you are left in a place with a child who uh, can't go to school, uh, in some cases can't even walk, can't eat, you are not going to feel better because the majority of other children don't get it. You know, there's also a knock-on effect that if the government doesn't recognise children with long COVID 
they're not going to be providing help. You're not no. going to be able to give up your job and take care of them and have a stipend from the government. No. And the same no. with adults with long COVID. Mm -hmm. Like if it's not a recognised, quantifiable illness, you're mm -hmm. not going to get mm -hmm. disability. They're no. not going to give you disability. So no. we're just left. I think we're left on our own, and we're collateral damage in the whole process of getting the economy back up and running. And didn't we hear last week um, the doctor saying that there was talk amongst the medical profession about not medicalising long COVID, so not making it into something that is actually a condition, a condition. And a that 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 can then receive the relevant help. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there were voices again. There were voices against starting the long COVID clinics. And where does that leave us then? If we're not medicalising it, what's the message then? That it's not medical. So, what, you know, are we back to the, it's some form of hysteria? It's in our head. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hysterical women. We spoke at the um, APPG earlier this year about long COVID in children. It was really, really moving. And, and it was me and Sammy and one other mother. And, and, and that mother has five children with long COVID. And she has long COVID herself. And... Um, Hearing her talk about, you know, taking her four-year-old daughter into hospital and actually getting down on her knees and begging the doctor to help. And, and then her being referred to social services was one of the hardest things I think I've heard in all of this that, I, that I've done, um, you know. And, and I think that that's sort of sums up, really, you know, where some of our, our parents have found themselves. It's like the worst kind of nightmare. And all we can do is, is just keep doing what we're doing and, you know, trying to get the word out. But it does feel we, we quite often swing between feeling elated, you know, when we get somewhere and then, you know, other times just feeling really overwhelmed and, um, and, and despairing, really. We were actually lucky enough to speak to two girls who've got long COVID, uh, Liliana, 16, and Kitty, 15. Both girls have been suffering from long COVID for more than a year now, and it was a really interesting and sometimes hard conversation to have with them about what it's like to live with the condition and also what it's like to deal with the medical profession. Hi, my name's Kitty. Um, I got long COVID back in March and I've had it for a year and a half now and we are still suffering. Hi, I'm Liliana. I'm 16 and I got COVID last September. Girls, would you mind sharing with us what symptoms you're suffering from? And Liliana, if we start with you and then let's hear from Kitty. I have headaches every day. I'm very sensitive to heat and uh, sunlight, so I get rashes a lot. Um, if I'm not feeling very well, my lymph nodes on my neck come up. I have really bad brain fog, memory loss, um, problems with getting words out, problems with writing words down. I have uh, joint aches. Um, I get really bad uh gut cramps if that makes sense i don't know how i should say that um heart palpitations um i think that's all of them there's so many to yeah you kind of lose you kind of lose track after a while yeah um so uh i deal with um heart palpitations um body aches uh, very bad gut cramps as well. Uh, brain fog is the biggest one. I just forget everything. Memory loss. Um, 
struggle with my vision. My vision's got terrible. I've got very bad vision right now. Um, else I forget everything nowadays. Brain, <laughs> brain fog is my biggest one right now. Um, speaking, I I can't speak very easily. Um, stuttering and uh, dizziness, and I've been having passing out episodes and seizures recently. Wow, that's really quite a long list of symptoms you're both experiencing. How is it affecting the rest of your life? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so for me, when I got it, I just started my GCSE year. So obviously my GCSEs were supposed to be at the end of the year. um, And I wasn't able to attend school really at all. I think overall for last year, I attended um, six weeks of school and that was it because that was all I could manage. Um, And also when it comes to like socialising with friends, it is actually, it's really difficult to do just because you don't have the energy to go out and meet your friends or you're so unwell and you just, you can't really like explain it to them because they can't think, oh, they're just milking it. Yeah, that you can't relate, or you think that they do. They think that you're doing it for attention. And I actually, it has. I have lost a couple of friends because of it, because you can't keep up with the social interaction, and you can't keep up with the messaging because you can't look at your phone because your head hurts. Um, so it has been really, really tough, definitely. Yeah, I'm similar to Liliana. I've lost friends, and um, because multiple think uh, people think because they can't see it, it's not there. When it's completely the other way around, um, it's a hidden disability and it needs to be spoken about more because no one understands how difficult it can be especially with a social life as when you're in bed with nothing to do you don't have you don't have the energy to message anyone you don't have the energy to do anything but sleep and do nothing and it's really difficult to have any form of social life or anything other than sleeping so it's really affecting every aspect of your life um when you've gone to get help what's your experience been with doctors for me there's been a quite a few significant moments mm-hmm. where like um I was in A&E on Christmas day with really bad um nerve pain like touching my skin it was I couldn't do, like sit down or anything and I had chest cramps so I couldn't walk and I had to go to A&E which was really you know the last resort because it was Christmas day um and the doctor told me it was in my head um and that it was because of my low moods that was causing it and I was making it up um and because I was a child he wasn't going to give me any pain medicine so that I should go home and enjoy my Christmas and I think that was probably the worst one for me just because he put it so bluntly that it wasn't real and but I've definitely had other experiences where they where they're like you know they they think you're making it up or they think that it's not real it's just something else going on yeah we've had experience where um my mum uh got ill first and then we found out I got ill as well and we we were trying to find out what we can do because our our symptoms were not similar and we wanted to know what it was because at this point no one knew anything about it and we uh, we asked the doctors saying what what's happening we've been ill for a couple months now and it's still not going away and we got messages saying and being told that I was mimicking her symptoms when we had no symptoms alike she um she has like very uh it's more to do with her lungs and I have more um heart palpitations and heart things and pains and stomach aches and um I forgot to say this earlier but uh, I'm also very sensitive to temperature and um sometimes water can give me rashes um but uh yeah we got told I was mimicking symptoms and it was just because I'm lonely and want something to do and it's really difficult because you're just not heard and no one believes you it sounds to me like you've had some really bad experiences with medical professions sounds really disheartening actually Um, What about the government and their stance on vaccines? 
and not wanting to give them to 12-year-olds and above. Do you think vaccines are a good idea? Yeah, <laughs> I think it's a great idea. I actually was lucky enough, because I'm 16, um, to get my vaccine back in March. I had my first one in May, I had my second one, um, which it was really relieving because one of the big issues with long COVID is the anxiety that comes along. Of getting it again. Yeah, it comes along with it. Even now I have the vaccine, I still get anxious about going out and, and getting the um, get catching it again. But I am very reassured that I have it because I know like Kitty hasn't been able to get it and a lot of other children who really, really do need it have been told that then that you know they don't fit the standards for it and they don't get it. So I think like America vaccinating twelve and above, I think it's just generally just a really good idea. Yeah, because I'm under sixteen, so I'm I'm fifteen. I will be turning sixteen soon, so hopefully I will be able to get the vaccine. But um, yeah, as Liliana said uh, very well, um, that it's just it's the anxiety of because if you've because uh, I was quite uh, I got COVID very early on. And to think that all of this could all the work that we put in to get well again could just go and we get it again and then we get long COVID again is terrifying. And it makes you not want to go out, not want to do things, want to stay in your bed, not try to get better in case the thought of getting it again. Mm-hmm. And it's really difficult to find the line of what's safe and what's necessity. That's actually really hard to hear you say that, guys. There is still a lot of good work being done by lots of eminent researchers and doctors out there trying to find help for people like us with long COVID. But do you feel that you've kind of been let down by the adults around you? Yeah, (laughs) pretty much. I think not all grown-ups, obviously. Mm -hmm. Both of our mums... Worked very hard. Worked extremely hard to to help us and help other children. Mm -hmm. And the parents with long COVID, uh, the parents with children with long COVID also have worked really hard um, to try and help us. But other than that, it's just the people that really should be trying, like doctors and government officials, I think definitely we've been let down by. Yeah. I think they've been let down by uh, the medical system at large, haven't they? In terms of doctors telling them that them mimicking their mother's symptoms i think this just goes back to so many of the people that we've spoken to it's, it's the lack of belief or the idea that you're somehow making it up yeah any doctor that thinks that a girl would rather be in hospital on christmas day than at home opening presents is barking yeah and it sounded really callous to me it must be so much harder when you are you're still a child you don't have any way of of really speaking up for yourself without the involvement of adults and you genuinely don't have a voice and if you don't have adults who have your back obviously their pa- all, all these parents sound like they're doing an amazing job so many of these parents seem to have long covid as well how can you advocate for multiple people when you're feeling rubbish yourself Join us next week as we hear others' experiences of long COVID. Share your stories and questions at tlcsessions.net. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram for the latest updates. And if you found this interesting, please do subscribe.